We normally talk about things more of a spiritual uplift nature here, but Annapolis was all over the news this week, and I have to make a few comments about it, really more about something underneath it all, and why I believe that the name of Annapolis will eventually be added to the lengthening list of failed peace talks like Camp David, Oslo, Madrid, and the Y Accords. But let's start with a good story, a real story, about a couple named Jim and Mary, some old friends of mine from New Zealand who moved to America years ago, and you know what? They suffered terribly during their first year here. They thought no one liked them, though they were arguably one of the nicest couples you'd ever want to meet. Jim and Mary would have a lovely evening as dinner guests. The evening would wear late. The host would start yawning and thank them for coming. And they would smile, bid them good night. Jim and Mary would exit the home and feel devastated again and again and again. Why? Well, in their native New Zealand, when a host wants to signal that the visit for the evening is concluding, he or she gets up and says, oh, let me just go around and put the kettle on. We'll have a cup of tea. And that's the signal that after the tea, another 15, 20 minutes, you should go. New Zealanders understand this, and they're very comfortable with this little bit of protocol. And not to offer a concluding cup of tea was to signal that the guests were not particularly welcome, that the visit had been kind of a sour one. So here are Jim and Mary in America, totally confused. They'd have lovely dinners, but no transitional cup of tea was offered. So what was the problem? It certainly wasn't a problem of English literacy. They spoke the language in common. It was a matter of cultural literacy. They didn't share the same cultural dictionary with their hosts. We could say that they all lived on the same planet, but they didn't inhabit the same world. This is one of the core problems in the Middle East conflict. Not the only one, but it's certainly a serious and foundational one. In the big picture, we all live on one planet But there are many worlds on this planet. Now, a proven window to peer into these many worlds is language. It's not always so simple, though, as we'll see. There's a concept in linguistics, the science of language, called false friends. That's when a word in one language sounds like a similar one in another, and so a person assumes that they mean the same thing. Let's go to Spanish for a moment. Educación means what? Education. Constitución, constitution. Now, if I say to you the word una decepción, you're going to think deception, right? But no. In Spanish, una decepción means a disappointment. And that not only happens, but now English and Spanish share a lot of common roots, being a Romance language based with some Germanic and Celtic and a few other things thrown in. But let's apply this to a couple of Semitic cognates that all of us will recognize. The word shalom and the Arabic word salam. You've heard the phrase Shalom Aleichem and Assalamu Alaikum. means, hi, peace, greetings, how you doing? Let's go for coffee, right? The issue isn't whether or not Shalom and Salam can be translated peace, but rather, what's the concept of peace being conveyed in the culture in which it's spoken every day? See, the Arabic word Salam has a number of derivations, many of which you know, like Muslim or Islam or Tislam. These words all come from the common root, which has something to do with peace. And we have world leaders like Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair right after 9-11 saying, Islam means peace. See, Salam doesn't mean peace. It means surrender. A Muslim is one who has surrendered his will and his life to the will of Allah as conveyed through the Quran. A Muslim man or woman dreams of al-Khalifa, wherein the Islamic caliphate extends across the planet. Non-Muslims, if they don't convert will at least surrender to the second-class status of taxation and a humbling process called dimitut, being a dimi, which is a second-class citizen. 
See, peace in Islamic terms doesn't include bilateral friendly relations with those who, by Quranic definition, are infidels. Jews are often called pigs and monkeys. Christians are often called the crusader nations. The Arabic term kafir, infidel, is commonly applied to describe us in the West. There's another important idea that we can learn from studying linguistics, and that's how a whole group of people perceives the world in which they live. The Islamic worldview is bifurcated. It's split into two realms. Prior to 9-11, very few people had heard this notion that I'm going to mention now. Hopefully it's familiar to you now, and that'll show a lot of progress on this concept into Western culture, which we want. The two realms in the Islamic worldview are Dar al-Salam, the house of peace, and Dar al-Harb, the house of war. So if you're a Jew, or a Christian, or a Taoist, or spiritually wandering and wandering, guess which house you're in. Right, the house of war. And it's the sworn duty of the house of peace to subdue the house of war. So what's the well-recognized Arabic word to describe that process of making the house of war subject to the house of peace? You probably said it, you thought it. Jihad which means struggle. Most think of armed struggle, but there are other forms of jihad as well. There's an architectural type of jihad. That's where the minaret on a mosque in a city has to be higher than any church or synagogue or other non-Muslim religious building. And then there's economic jihad. That's the imposition of a special tax on non-Muslims. It wouldn't be far-fetched to say that the oil price hikes, which began way back in 1973, remember some of you when gas prices jumped to nearly a dollar a gallon? That that was a form of economic jihad. Jihad, the, the struggle, is the process of bringing the house of war under the domain of the house of peace, Dar es Salaam. Now, does paying $100 a barrel for oil sound peaceful to you today? Of course it doesn't. But it does fit the Arabic concept of peace, which is submission and surrender. But how does this manifest in, let's say, talks with Israel? Remember, in Islam, peace is defined in terms of the extent of Muslim influence over the non-Muslim. There's a very famous Islamic precedent for making a temporary peace with enemies to gain some time to build up strength with the purpose of eventually overthrowing them. Uh, Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, did this when he negotiated a peace agreement with an enemy tribe that he was fighting called the Qureshi people. This agreement, called the Khudabiyah Agreement, was supposed to last for 10 years. However, within two years, when Muhammad's forces were stronger, he basically tore up the treaty, attacked the Qureshis, and slaughtered them. So, remember that phrase, the Khudabiyah Agreement. On November the 16th in 1998, Chairman Yasser Arafat was speaking at a rally of his Fatah party in Ramallah, and he said these words, When we chose the peace of the brave, that's a term that means the Oslo and the Y Accords, we chose it with trust in the Prophet who agreed to the Treaty of Khudabiyah. Now, Knowing the background of Muhammad's truce of treachery, can it be any clearer what Arafat's reference conveyed there? And if it's so transparent, why is it so hard for Israeli and American peace brokers to acknowledge it? Knowing very well that a conventional military conflict with Israel directly would likely fail, Mr. Arafat got together with his strategists and they devised something in 1974 in Cairo called the Strategy of Phases. And it's very simple. It begins with establishing a small Palestinian autonomy, which has been done, leading eventually to the outright destruction of the Jewish state. Every concession towards peace made by the Palestinian Authority is just another occasion to catch a breath and plan the next assault. So, to the Arab world, the Annapolis conference this week is pretty much a folly. In fact, there's a little bit of irony suggested by the very name Annapolis when transliterated into Arabic. It's been the pun kicked around like a, like a football in the Arab world. Annapolis, because there's no letter P in Arabic, becomes I am the police. So the Arab world hears America saying, I'll be the cop that tells you what to do. 
Anna Bolis. In the meantime, we have terror-weary Israeli leaders like Mr. Olmert offering up hard assets for a paper peace. And this is perceived as gross weakness and appeasement, and it plays very conveniently into that strategy of phases, with the ultimate aim being not peace with Israel, but every piece of Israel. In the Muslim worldview, there's no difference between Tel Aviv and Tulkarim, between Jericho and Jaffa, between Haifa and Hebron. They're all one and the same piece of real estate. Now the West, together with the Israeli seculars, downplay the rule of Islamic theology and political strategies like this. It's a very serious blind spot. And when Western leaders like Mr. Bush say, Islam means peace, they speak a partial truth. When Mahmoud Abbas says he's willing to talk peace with Israel, he speaks a partial truth. He's prepared to declare a temporary state of non-belligerence to gain a tactical advantage. So, dear listener, whether you're Jewish, Christian, none of the above, recognize that this week you've been treated to another amazing adventure of the peace game, where the object is not to live happily ever after, but to keep the game in motion. This idea of two states for two peoples living peacefully side by side is the vision of Mr. Bush for the Israelis and the Palestinians. This new peace will create new friends, they say. But, you know, if you look back over history, peace doesn't make friends. Friends make peace. Annapolis didn't make any new friends this week. It does bring peace closer, but in the sense of piecemeal efforts to dismantle the Jewish state. If this bothers you, as it does me, I'd love to hear from you. I can suggest some action steps we can engage in together. And if you'd be interested in digging deeper into your own Jewish roots, there's a wonderful program available where you can study with a qualified mentor on the phone for just an hour a week. The learning is free, and so is the phone call. Just point your web browser right now to jewishworldreview.com forward slash P-I-T to learn more.